natural gas facility is really running a little over 100 employees. And then if that is going to be supplanted by a battery standalone energy storage system or a wind farm or a solar farm, you're then talking about 10 employees. Why? Because they're trying to get the cost out. They're optimizing. They're innovating. They want to be able to deploy at scale. Well, that's all great in the macroeconomic scene. It's not great on workforce development. And so, I mean, like really the enemy of oil and gas isn't renewables, it's automation. We are here to try to explain to you what it is we do here. The solar industry in the U.S. employs more people than Google, Apple, Facebook, and Twitter combined. The most valuable commodity I know of is information. Wouldn't you agree? Welcome into the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. I am your host, Fred Davis. Episode 40, the big 4-0 of the Green Insider, coming at you right now. We're very excited about today's episode, as we are each and every week. Kevin Doffing, owner of the Energy Capital of the Future Consulting Agency here in the great city of Houston, going to join us talking all things energy transition. Uh, former Army officer as well. He's doing a lot with veterans here in the Houston area, so a lot of good stuff going on with Kevin and his group over there at Energy Capital of the Future, which we'll get into here in just a little bit. But before we do all that, here is Mike Niemer, CEO and founder of eRenewable, telling you a little bit about what we do here at eRenewable. Hi, Mike Niemer here, president and CEO of eRenewable. At eRenewable, we bring technology to the sustainability space by hosting real-time online auctions for both PPAs and VPPAs. Our electronic management tool helps streamline the RP process, whether you are a buyer or a seller of wind, solar, or battery storage, our platform will provide pricing efficiencies to your organization. Additionally, we help customers with microgrid or battery storage development, renewable natural gas by turning waste energy, LED lighting and HVAC efficiency upgrades, unbundled recs, and provide energy advisory services to our customers. Please visit our website at erenew.net or call us at 1-866-ERENEW1. As always, thank you for listening to The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. Thank you so much for that, Mr. Mike Niemer. Of course, find out more about eRenewable at eRenew.net. That's eRenew.net. And don't forget to check out our strategic partners over at Intelometry. It's Intelometry.com. They are the premier energy software provider in both the oil and gas as well as renewable energy space, retail energy, you name it. Nobody better when it comes to energy software in the business. Check out our friends Jeff Marola and the crew over at Intelometry. That's Intelometry.com. It's that time once again for the NEMA News Minute. Here is Donna Foy telling you all things that are going on with the folks over at NEMA. That's the North American Energy Markets Association. You can find them over at NEMA.com. Here is Miss Donna Foy. Hi, Fred. This is Donna Foy, Deputy Director of the North American Energy Markets Association. Thanks again for the opportunity to provide another NEMA update for the Green Insiders listeners. First, NEMA is pleased to announce that Plus Power LLC and Hartree Partners are NEMA's newest market members. They are based in San Francisco and New York City, respectively. Their contact information is available on NEMA's website, or will soon be. Planning continues for the 2021 Fall Conference to be hosted by Customized Energy Solutions in Philadelphia on October 4 through 6 at the Logan Hotel. While registration won't open for several weeks, we want people to save the dates now. The weather should be beautiful, will feature a lot of great outdoor events, 
and people should be ready to get together with friends and colleagues. We're also continuing with our virtual presentation series. Our next presentation is on Corporations' Influence on Renewable Energy Markets by Marissa Barron from Level 10 Energy. Level 10 is uniquely positioned to provide insight into PPA price trends, how corporations are using environmental and social justice issues as key criteria in project selection processes, and how virtual storage agreements and other novel commercial structures are changing the way corporations approach new renewable energy investments. That presentation will be on Wednesday, May 12th at 3 o'clock Eastern. We also have presentations coming up from Matt Rogers of Commodity Weather Group on summer strategies, what weather could deliver for the season ahead on May 26th. Matt has a really engaging way of presenting the weather. And after having to cancel at the last minute due to technical difficulties, we are pleased to announce that Julian Dumoulin Smith's presentation on the 2021 energy market is rescheduled for June 9. We'll provide more information on those and other presentations very soon. On the RFP front, Nebraska Public Power District, on behalf of its industrial customer, Monolith Nebraska, is seeking bids for renewable generation power PPAs with a proposed commercial operation date during calendar year 2025. NPPD seeks to procure energy, capacity, and environmental attributes, including RECs, for a term between 10 and 30 years. NPPD will consider bids for wind and solar projects with and without energy storage capability from one or more projects located inside the SPP footprint with preference for projects located within the state of Nebraska. ACES is conducting an RFP for battery energy storage system on behalf of Sierra Southwest Cooperative Services. Proposals are due by May 24th. The link to get additional information from ACES is available on NEMA's website, NEMA.com. You can also see other open RFPs on our website. Lastly, we have a couple of new job postings. Elite Inc. is seeking a supervisor of short-term energy markets and a real-time trader. And Dairyland Power Cooperative is looking for a wholesale accounts manager and trader. Information is posted at our website. That's it for now. We look forward to giving another update soon. Thanks, Fred. Thank you for that, Miss Donna Foy. Once again, you can check out all of the NEMA news over at NEMA.com. That's N-A-E-M-A.com. All right, without further ado, let's jump out to the podcast for today. Kevin Doffing, owner of Energy Capital of the Future Consulting Agency, one of the premier energy transition voices here in the city of Houston. If you haven't heard about him, well, you're going to hear about him today. Former Army officer and certainly not one to mince words. We're going to talk to Kevin today about uh, what exactly has gone wrong with oil and gas. Kevin, no stranger to the oil and gas business, having grown up here in the city of Houston, uh, making the move into the renewable energy space, as well as his thoughts on Senate Bill 3 and what does it mean for the renewable industry here in the state of Texas, and what is Kevin excited about for the rest of 2021, not just for himself, but for the renewable energy sector as a whole. Without further ado, please enjoy Mr. Kevin Doffing. We sold steel toe boots and stuff. We had a mobile shoe truck that would go on site and sell. Our business model was basically a B2B business model that transacted B2C. So we would have contracts or agreements for small to mid-sized oil field services, manufacturers, field service companies to send their employees in. They get outfitted. 
And then we'd send their company a bill and then we get paid. It was a healthy business. It was good business until it wasn't. 2015, the oil crash happened because the Saudis put their, kept their foot on the gas as suddenly independent shale producers were the swing producers. Well, the Saudis didn't like that and they have cheaper conventional oil to produce. And so they dropped oil prices and it flooded the market. It put a lot of people out of business and we were used to them protecting oil prices and they didn't want to do that. And so we got hit really bad in the industry in 2015, 16, and into, I mean, you could see say even till today. And you saw when the market finally bounced back, they accepted uh, digitization and things that take like Kirk Coburn at Surge Ventures that's now over at Shell, right? Like he was early on the digitization and startup activity for oil and gas, but he didn't get his fair shot because he was early. They ended up closing in like October of 14. If they'd been around another year, they would have just taken off like gangbusters because the oil and gas industry was doing anything to shave a nickel off of every barrel. Whereas, you know, in 2014, it's like, we're not taking a meeting about, unless it's about increasing production because when barrel prices are over $100, why would I think about cost savings? As oil and gas even did recover, they recovered with fewer people going out to the field. I mean, in 2014, you didn't have high-speed connectivity to offshore platforms or shale platforms. They'd literally put the stuff, Excel files, Windows 97, onto a thumb drive and have to helicopter it back to Houston so they could look at the well log, right? Or an engineer's going offshore every month to go inspect something. Well, now you have high connectivity and suddenly, you can just have somebody sitting in Houston doing that. In 2017, the most jobs that were open in the oil and gas industry were tech-based jobs. Mm-hmm. NOV became one of the largest recruiters for developers in the city, right? If you think of developers, you think of like apps, not NOV, right? right? But like they had this whole niche developer community that was doing great. And so our business was, just was never going to come back as we had increased pressure from uh, e-commerce platforms. We had a dwindling pie and a ever harder to compete slice of that pie, right? And that's just how I feel about what, what oil and gas is experiencing now is like, you're going to see, I think we've hit peak oil in 2019. I could be wrong. Some people say it's 2025 or 2030. Okay, so the most liberal projections in the favor of oil and gas is that within, before my kid goes to high school, we're going to see peak oil. Well, so that means that every time we're looking at projects, we're having fewer and fewer projects. We're entering a long tail of oil and gas. It's not going away, but just going to be continued pressure. And to be in the industry is going to be a demoralizing rather than like being on the upswing of the markets. Yeah. So I advise clean energy startups on their commercialization strategy. And I kind of got into this. There's some folks that I've been helping over the years. I knew I wanted to get into the energy transition by hook or crook. And a couple of years ago, I was asked by some friends at the Canon to help out with some uh, pitch practice for the Canadian consulate. And, you know, I just always beat the drum because I'm a recovering small business owner. Sales move the world, salve all wounds. And so when I hear startups pitch and they never mention who their customer is, what's going on with their customer, why does this matter to them? And they're pitching it to an investor. You know, I've never cashed a million dollar check and I've never written one. But I imagine that if I did, I would want to feel confident that I'm writing a check for someone who's going to go make me money and not just look for more investors after me in a game of musical chairs. Right, right. So that seemed to resonate with some people. I got connected with my first client, Terrapin Geothermics, at that event. 
I love that it wasn't a science project. It was a business model innovation, you know, bringing third-party capital to the table to deploy TRL9 technology that's already been deployed globally, but just hasn't been used in the U.S. because of project economics didn't really matter. But when you start factoring in ESG standards, you know, opportunities with infrastructure funds, suddenly it unlocks a lot of projects that may have been marginal before. It makes them very viable and profitable. So I was just really excited. We talked about opening a Houston office and eventually they just kind of threw a contract my way to see what could happen. They liked what I was doing. And now for the better part of a year, I've been doing that. And once I did that, it really unlocked in other people's minds, my ability to do what I'm doing. So, you know, whether I was in the infantry or running a business, basically no one thinks I can do something until after I've done it, which is fine. I, I like a low bar that I can easily step over. Towers fell my sophomore year at AM. I thought about the FBI really long and hard. And then I found out you have to have a good grades. So that kind of ruled me out. 2004, the Army was having a really hard time recruiting. And so luckily I had a pulse, which meant I qualified to enlist. Then they even said, hey, you want to be an officer? And I said, I don't want to go do ROTC. They're like, that's okay. We have this thing called Officer Candidate School. And you can go to OCS and get your commission with your college degree. And I said, sure. And eventually came out the other end as a second lieutenant who most of us thought we were, uh, you know, the joke I like to tell is the difference between a second lieutenant and God is a God realizes that he's not a second lieutenant. When I took over and started running my unit and things like that, I did some things that people found as unconventional, which I guess looking back were entrepreneurial, but I definitely had no intention of doing it. I wanted to go into corporate America that's what I thought I would do. One of the professors I got to know kept seeing me like Inc. Magazine. And I'm like, why is he sending me this entrepreneur, like small business stuff? Doesn't he know I have zero interest in that? I mean, like he sent me this magazine every every month when I'm in Iraq. I loved it, but I was just like, this is so off base for me. And uh, he saw what I did. I told him that later. I'm like, you saw what I, I did. And I, again, you're a much smarter individual than I. Dr. Dick Cummins, that was his name. I work in energy transition, mostly, you know, pretty much exclusively with clean energy startups and, and companies. But I mean, I grew up in Houston uh, at my dad's company and we sold personal protective equipment, you know, steel toe boots, red wing boots, hard hats, everything in between. And so I grew up since I was six, you know, for a dollar pushing a broom or, you know, I'd get paid a dollar to wash the dishes. But, you know, when I turned 14, my dad brought me in and I had to start working there basically whenever I wasn't at school. Some Saturdays, definitely the summers, a lot of holidays. And so I just got to meet people up and down the energy industry, mostly on the labor side, some engineers, but you just got to have a slice of life and see what was going on. You know, I say energy, it was really oil and gas and manufacturing and field services. And you just got exposed to all the different things. And it was so interesting because it's so dynamic. I mean, people would walk in and be like, I work in oil and gas. And I'm like, yeah, but what do you do in oil and gas? <laughs> I'm an upstream. Okay, well, what are you doing upstream? Are you like doing wireline? Are you doing well logging? And they're like, oh, okay. So you actually like know some of these words. I'm like, well, I know some of these words, but I don't know what they mean. But if you'd like to tell me. And so like, you know, one conversation over 15 to 45 minutes at a time while you help a customer decide what's going to be a comfortable pair of shoes or, you know, what's going to fit for them and, you know, fit it for the field. You pick up a lot of stuff and you learn a lot. And so I was just always interested in how dynamic and complex and critical that the energy infrastructure is and how few people understand it because it's so complicated. I was also kind of put off by 
how little effort was put in over the last, I don't know, 50 years to explain that to people. Right. So that's where like I push back when people are like, it's unfair that the environmentalists have controlled the narrative on energy production. And if people only knew how the power comes out of their outlet, I'm like, well, look, I own energy stocks and we've kind of harvested the marketing spend on educating our consumers for 50 years. And that's been really great for stockholders, but the bill came due and we abdicated that space. So what people are saying isn't false, but it's not a full narrative. So you can't be mad at anybody other than ourselves and our forebears. So, you know, I don't hate energy. I don't hate oil and gas. I think that we need to clean it up. We shouldn't be burning it. We should be using it as feedstock. I had to close my business. And that's when I entered into the energy transition was because I was on the back end of a business model, right? There's nothing wrong with brick and mortar. It's just that it's based off of like a convenience factor and commodities. And when you have the internet, those are two things that the internet's way more competitive on. If you can't find a restrictive competitive advantage in retail, which is you make your own stuff or source your own stuff, you design it, or you have some kind of experience like a luxury brand, you don't have any protection from competition and you're just going to get eaten up by somebody that's working out of their house and shipping out of their garage and has zero employees as opposed to, you know, healthcare for staff that have to sit there and answer questions. So, I mean, like, wasn't a viable model. There wasn't anything wrong with it. It had today and we exited probably the last time we could before 2020, but not at the most optimal profitable time. I've spent a lot of time in veteran nonprofits. I've run a lot of groups from Lone Star Veterans Association to Combined Arms and Bunker Labs here in Houston. And I mean, that's how I got involved in the space a lot was I started networking years ahead of when I wanted to move in because the two best times to plant a tree are, you know, 10 years ago and today. And your, your network is the uh, place you want to sit down in the shade. And so you better get started on it sooner than later. And so I was trying to do some for veterans and renewables. And I was looking for a trade group in town to bolt on with. And I found out that there wasn't a trade group for the renewables industry. And so I was like, well, I do a lot of this stuff. Would you like help? And that's how I became the board chair, the founding board chair for the Renewable Energy Alliance. And so we were using white label, you know, programming model stuff that I had built for the veteran community. Right. So I was the only person on the board without power background, but that in a lot of like snide comments that kind of get a chuckle. So, you know, like we try to have a good time. Fast forward, getting all that stuff done. Yeah, I think that oil and gas isn't going to go away. We don't want to see people demoralized. But I mean, there are inherent challenges in that because renewables are trying to displace an incumbent, even on market share, they have to do it more efficiently. This is the analogy I always give people. Look, if you look at a coal plant, you're talking about like 2000 jobs. Now, coal was really pushed out of the market by natural gas. Natural gas plants planted coal one-to-one, right? The, the market penetration for wind and solar was not such that it was ever pushing out coal. And all the war on coal or all the marketing messages really never made that. It might have convinced people in their mind, but if you look at the data, a coal plant went down as a natural gas plant went in because it was more economical, right? This is going to be changed based on dollars and cents, not hearts and minds, but hearts and minds matter. So natural gas facilities really running a little over 100 employees. And then if that is going to be supplanted by a battery standalone energy storage system or a wind farm or a solar farm, you're then talking about 10 employees. Why? 
because they're trying to get the cost out. They're optimizing, they're innovating. They want to be able to deploy at scale. Well, that's all great in the macroeconomic scene. It's not great on workforce development. And so, I mean, like really the enemy of oil and gas isn't renewables, it's automation, right? That's what killed coal jobs. It wasn't, you know, these other things. Coal's expensive. And even as they stayed in, what was killing jobs on the production and mining side was automation. And so, you know, I think that there's just a false flag there or whatever you call it, red herring in that narrative on jobs. It's really an automation issue and, and a retrain of the workforce. And you can't just say, well, we're going to, you know, we're going to retrain miners to coders or whatever. And that stuff just doesn't work. My wife comes from coal country. And I mean, like, that's just, it's not practical. People want to be where they are. Um, and, you know, there's a place for it, but there's just not as many jobs in renewables as there is in, in oil and gas and these other uh, legacy energy system jobs. I mean, I remember talking to a guy at Shell New Energy and he's like, whenever we have a job opening in Shell New Energy, on the internal side, it's 40 times as many applicants internally as for any other job opening. And I mean, they have like senior engineers applying for entry level positions because they just want to get inside of that. Internally, this isn't even what's happening on the open jobs market. These are people that already have jobs at Shell that want to switch over. We're early. I mean, you look at the startup activity, you're really talking about like Syzygy has closed a Series B. You have a couple of SPACs in the local area uh, that are on batteries, and one's really an oil and gas focus. Then you have some A round closes with Topple and some Vita and a couple others. But I mean, there's not like this rash of like IPO, right? Aside from Sonova, there hasn't been an IPO in the renewable space in Houston, right? And outside of the people that I just mentioned, you know, most of which are really good friends, there's not that much economic activity. Now on the ideation side with the huge influx of innovation programming, Halliburton Labs and Scott Gale and Dale Winger over there and with the ION coming online next month, and I mentor over there, Smart Cities Accelerator in Greentown, which is where I'm talking to you from. You know, I mean, all of this inventory of, of new spaces and programming is just really coming online. We're still early on this, which is great if you're not in the space or you don't know about it and you're hearing about it for the first time. That's okay. The, the barriers to entry are not erected so that you have to be a veteran of the industry to get in. Just get, just show up especially as like things thaw out, people get vaccinated we start having in person, like show up. Like that's how you get involved in this stuff, to show up. That's 90% of volunteering is showing up. How disappointed are you that renewable energy caught the flack that it did? And for whatever reason, that mantra or that feeling has been sustained in the legislature. Is it just because right now renewables don't have the same kind of lobbying power that oil and gas does? Yes, absolutely. I mean, like I would even say like the reason that coal has sustained outside of the window of economic returns for its investors is because of the political capital from having high workforce and having voters and having sustained profits in the past that and being entrenched lobbyists at the political level. I mean, like coal is so entrenched in the co-ops and the municipal uh, level in this country because they control the boards of these munis and these co-ops, right? I mean, there have been people on those boards from coal companies who are like, yeah, nobody challenges us so we can do whatever we want. And they'll subsidize coal production to the deficit of their ratepayers, and nobody can challenge. Nobody challenges it, right? You know, it's like complaining at the at a general election. You don't like the two people you're voting between. Well, you didn't get involved in the primary, so that's where this was decided, really. You know, 
so that being said, I was actually just on uh, the phone with um, Colin Leyland. He's the political director for the Environmental Defense Fund of Texas. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about the status of these bills. And so, you know, the the chairman of the committees, respectively, are the ones who kind of propose the Senate and House bills. So, you know, they're kind of moving forward. Um, the language from the Senate bill got into SB3, which is, has some really good stuff on enforcing the weatherization uh, on all facilities, right? Which is something that we all need because that was the problem that uh, in, you know, winter storm Uri really hit us was everything broke down, nuclear, coal, natural gas, wind, everything, everything sucked because we didn't have teeth around weatherization and we're in a price competitive only market. And so if you don't require them to do it, they're not going to do it because it screws up project economics and the project might not get built versus whatever their competitors are and whatever technology form that is. So, you know, there's uh, Amendment F4, which if you're listening and you don't like what you're hearing, talk to your congressman uh, or your state legislature or senator about that. F4 Amendment has taken the language out of, I think it's 1273 Senate bill. Um to basically put all that in there. And what they're doing is they're not just shifting costs of ancillary services from thermal to renewable, they're shifting all costs of ancillary services to renewables. And ancillary services is a lot. It's frequency regulation on the grid, it's having backup power, it's a lot of different things. And it's just mind boggling to think, even if you make the argument that wind is intermittent and so you need to do whatever, okay. But how do you shift all costs off of thermal generation? And it, it, I mean, it just sets an unlevel playing field. And again, I just go back to my military stance of that's not stable, right? You know, this lopsided field is not conducive to being open for business in Texas. It's not conducive to free market thinking. It's not conducive to a lot of things. And so I just think it's, you know, and it's, it's being acted in bad faith from these people that are pushing this. And you know, if it's a frequency regulation thing, batteries have the capacity to do that. And there's standalone battery uh, that's being created, but we need to be able to price that offering into the market. You know, I'm not saying that we need to have a capacity market like they do in the Northeast or anything like that. But I mean, you know, what this does is it jeopardizes what's funding a lot of schools in rural communities and in West Texas. It's jeopardizing existing investment. And if you think that your pension fund and other things aren't invested into these projects, you might want to take a look at what those funds are invested into, what the mutual funds that you have. ESG highly rated funds have been outperforming for the last 18 to 24 months. So chances are, if you have a professionally managed mutual fund, it may be strongly weighted into ESG because of its outstanding performance. So you may want to look at that you may have exposure inside of what's about to happen on your retirement and other things that are affecting you personally in your company. And, you know, it's just going to screw up about $60 billion in investment that's about to flow into the state. You look at the interconnection queue for ERCOT, 90% is renewable, right? So all this new stuff that's coming in, all the investment that's coming in is in this form. And if we screw this up, it doesn't just screw up the project economics and the investors that are already here, which include you and me. It's also going to screw up future investment. And how is Houston not going to be Detroit by leading? And that's not going to happen if we're saying we're closed for business. We're, we're only open for the last 50 years of business, which is going to stay. We're still going to have oil and gas investment. We're still going to drill new wells. We just need to do it safely in a you know conscious way of all these factors that are going on 
But if we say, nah, we're good. Well, don't be upset when there's no influx of new jobs. Don't be upset when the capital markets dry up for even the the amount of business that's still going on. And don't be upset when you got to pick up and move your family or you see your housing prices degrade. And I don't want any of that. Your gut versus what you're hearing and maybe those two align. Ultimately, what's going to be the uh, final say on this with this uh, amendment? And do you think these ancillary charges are going to end up getting footed by the renewable services? I, I think what, what Colin was telling me is the representative out of Nacogdoches, I, they are pretty level-headed. And so the likelihood that they're going to allow some BS get in there is lower. But again, I don't know how these decisions are made. I'm not a smart person. I don't know the ins and outs of the political apparatus in Texas. I assume that everyone is acting in good faith and looking out for their fellow Texans and is doing this since they're not a professional politician with everyone's best interests at heart. I don't know what will end up happening. And honestly, if people don't voice their concerns at this moment in the next week or so, you know, we're all culpable for whatever happens. I don't believe that bad legislation is the fault of the people who passed it. It's the fault of all of us for not standing up, being involved, and being active in the things that affect us. Get you out of here with this. Kevin, you've been absolutely fantastic. I appreciate all your time today, and I'm glad we made this connection. 2021, what are the big things that you see that need to be cleaned up uh, energy transition-wise, or what do you see some of the, you know, Senate Bill 3 notwithstanding, and not just from a Texas standpoint, but just from a, you know, from the rest of the country and the rest of the industry? What are some things? Obviously, hydrogen's probably one of them. And then two, what's, uh, what's on Kevin Doffing's docket uh, for the rest of 2021? I think private markets are really going to start putting together new financial instruments to finance and really deploy these solutions at scale. Look, most of the stuff that we need to do to get to like 80 or 90% of a clean grid already exists. We just need to do it. And so, I mean, like when I talk to people that are doing, running these startups and doing these things, like I love talking to people that are in the ideation phase, but I love people who are making sales and commercializing, putting steel in the ground. That's what's going to make a difference today. Because if you're ideating on something right now, you're five to 10 if not 15 years from commercialization and really like making a difference in the world, right? You got to start somewhere, but there's a lot of stuff that can be done right now. One of my clients, we're going to be recycling wind blades, right? And I mean, that's a, that's an albatross that hangs around the neck of the wind industry where there's these elephant graveyards just stacking this stuff up. Okay. Most people would say, ha ha ha, you know, you're not green. Hey, look, Wind and solar companies don't get a pass on their ESG reporting. They got to do the same thing, you know, they got to do the same thing that everybody else does, right? And so you hold an oil and gas company the same thing you hold everybody else to. But it, that's a market opportunity. That's not a problem. I don't see problems. I see opportunities to go make money. And so like, we're going to be grinding this stuff down. We sell it to cement companies. They use it in their kiln to fire it. And then the sludge gets mixed into the cement and it's gone. You know, full life cycle use. So, I mean, and that's not like this crazy, you know, acid mix. Well, I've seen some crazy stuff. I like it because it's another military guy. You know, Tyler's former enlisted. It's stupid simple that the two of us can understand it. And so, like, I'm excited to see stuff like that happen. I'm excited about companies that get stuff done. And to see, like, more of a private equity conventional oil and gas model applied to uh, the energy transition, that's going to unlock project finance. And the whole like, you know, things that happen on the coast with these VCs and these angels. I mean, like, look, Houston has always had a really strong angel group. 
The Houston Angel Network is one of the high, most highly active groups. Houston Angels are just people that work in oil and gas that reinvest in new oil and gas stuff. Like we're used to doing this. It's not really that crazy. It's just we got to get the veneer of Austin and, you know, San Francisco off of it and just say, look, we're going to do an energy project. So we got some people that are really smart. But I was talking to a guy who's formerly a VP of engineering at a, you know, oil field manufacturing company, you know, a household name in Innovira Weatherford. And he got laughed at by VC funds. They're like, you're too old to do this. Wait, so you're upset that this engineer in their late 50s knows everything, knows everyone, has a reputation, knows how to do this, how to scale quickly, has done this before, and you don't want to give them money? And they end up getting their money from a well-heeled, deep-pocketed Texas family to go do geothermal. And they're drill, you know, Lev is amazing. And he's drilling the first geothermal well at Ellington Field this summer, just crushing it, buying deep water wells that have confirmed high heat. And I mean, like, they're going to move fast and they're partnering with DOD. They're winning Department of Energy grants, partnering with the Air Force. So, I mean, like, that's how Texas is going to get stuff done, right? We're going to do things how we normally do it. And most of the entrepreneurs, honestly, that I talk to are either in their 20s or their 50s. And I love talking to these people in their 50s that just know how to get stuff done. And I think that that's going to be the surge of, of economic activity in this energy transition in Houston is the people who know how to get stuff done and you, they, don't, they don't fit a stereotype of an energy entrepreneur. So that's what I'm excited about. I love working with folks like this. I love seeing deals get done. That's, that's what I'm all about. I love working with you know, some of the offices at, with, through Canada or Poland or Norway, they're sending their startups here that want to relocate here because this is where business gets done. I had a VC firm out of San Francisco reach out because, hey, we're looking to expand and Houston seems where you, this is where you build things. Yes, this is where hard things get done. This isn't the land of apps and the BS that gets done. Uh, a VC was talking about how for $40 million, they could develop an end-to-end -end company that could IPO in Silicon Valley. In energy, that's one project. It's just a completely different capital structure, and it requires more serious, intentional investing. And we have that here. So I'm very bullish on where we're going to go. It's not going to happen without intention and hard work. But damn it, we got, the, we got the will and the stakes on the table to get it done. Thank you so much for that, Mr. Kevin Doffing. Glad to have you on board, and what a great conversation that was. Again, Kevin, never one to mince words, and uh, we certainly hope that you enjoyed his candor on this episode. Don't miss any of the Green Insider podcast. You can check them all out over at Apple iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, eRenew.net, or wherever you get your podcasts. And, of course, don't forget about the Power Chat as well, our new short-form podcast where we get you in and out in 10 minutes or less. This has been the Green Insider Podcast powered by eRenewable. Thank you to everybody for help making it possible as always. And don't you forget, we make going green easier.